Podcast, where we discuss personal growth and concepts for improving organizational culture. This is your host, Philip Grison. As you increase your wisdom, I hope you enlighten others on your path towards greatness. If you want to go further, head over to leaderthink.com. Good morning, everybody. I've got a really special episode for you today. I have Joanna Pagonis with Sinogap Solutions, and uh, she is a strong advocate of effective leadership skills, and that is her specialty. Uh, she not only studies them, she's done a lot of research about it. And so we're going to have a, a lot of conversations about our current theories about what is an effective leader versus an effective manager. And we might even um, challenge some currently held belief systems so really been looking forward to this episode. Um, she's a, a highly intelligent individual, and I'm learning things from her already. Um, so Joanna, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe how you came up with the name uh, Synogap Solutions and what sort of services you offer? Right. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for for all those compliments. It's wonderful. <laughs> I'm really excited to be on the show too, Philip. So thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, a little bit about my background. So, um, you know, I started as, you know, I won't go way, way, way back, but I'll start with um, my background in instructional design. So I have 20 years accumulated experience in learning and development. So really working in, with organizations and I worked in uh, all three sectors. So profit, uh, public and, and non-pro- uh, nonprofit as well. And developing and implementing and evaluating programs. Uh, I initially started with um, at-risk youth, life programs, uh, social skill development, um, anti-bullying, anger management, things like that. And you know, that was my stint in nonprofit. And eventually I went over to the corporate world, the for-profit world, and then made my way over to public, which was my last uh, full-time job before I started my own business. So uh, working in a corporate context, developing training programs, specifically in technical skill development for law enforcement, primarily, and then move towards um, an organizational context. Because what I started to see was people would take training, but they weren't always capable of applying what they learned in the workplace. So I wanted to understand the workplace a little bit better. And how does learning happen within an organizational context? So I moved away from very specific technical skill training and development towards more of a a learning organization, like a learning and development lens in regards to how organizations learn and people and organizations learn. And so I did that for many, many years and ran teams that oversaw kind of organizational training and development projects within different companies across government, uh, I should say organizations with uh, across government. And I always had this, this dream that I would start my own business. And I think it's one of the reasons why I decided to do my PhD, because I had a 10-year stint, like a hiatus between my master's and my PhD. I didn't think I was going to actually get another degree after I completed my master's. But I found that, you know, I, I felt like my, my, my learning was limited a little bit. And I wanted to do a bit more research to kind of explore and understand some of the, the things that I was seeing. And that convinced me to do a PhD, but then I thought it would it help me with my own credibility, at least for myself, to feel like I was a bit more credible if I had 
if I had that degree. Uh, and plus, it gave me the opportunity to do research. And my organization at the time supported me for the four years that I did it. So I'm like, well, this is a gift. Not only will they support me by giving me time and even subsidize some of my schooling costs. I'm like, this is a win-win. So I did it. And then after I did my PhD, I continued to work for government for another two years. And I thought, you know what? I, this is the time I need to, I need to launch. I need to leave and take the plunge and do it. Cause I was doing it oh, part-time. Wow. Yeah. So like, honestly, Philip, I was doing a part-time like consulting on the side, my side hustle. And then I thought, just do it. You know, you, you're, you're, if you don't do it now, when will you do it? So, you know, when I decided to launch it, February, 2020, so right before the <laughs> pandemic, <laughs> what a great time to start a launch a brand new business. So, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about leadership, right? Uh, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about self-management resiliency, but wow, that is, you know, I, I, I think one of the reasons why I waited so long to launch my business is because I also wanted to get credibility, not only in education with the credentials, but with experience. I wanted to move up and become a senior manager, leader, get some exposure to being an executive, to understand what it's like to run an organization. But when you, st when you launch your own business, like you get a different type of schooling. I'll, I'll definitely say that. So it's been exciting, yeah. frustrating, scary, but very rewarding. And so my business, yeah, I'll transition to what we do. It's Sinogap Solutions. So Sinogap is actually my last name spelt backwards. And I came, I have to thank my husband for helping me with that a little bit too. And, you know, I'm trying to think of what an, the name of the company could be. I didn't want it to just be, oh, Joanna Pagonas Consulting. I wanted the company to grow and expand and maybe go across Canada. I, I really want to transform workplaces across Canada, maybe eventually across North America. So I, I saw this initiative bigger than me. So I didn't want it to be just my name, but I wanted a piece of it piece of me in it. So I thought, okay, my last name is spelled backwards. And Sinogap, if you want to break it down, it's you can see it as see no gaps. And part of my role, and now we're getting into what my business does, is one of the things that I love to do is organizational consulting. So a company will bring me in and we'll discuss and explore what they want their ideal state to be. We'll talk about what their current state is, and I'll work with them and partner with them to do a gap analysis. And then partner with them to design strategies, or like I like to call it a bridge, that will get them from their current state to their ideal state. So to fill those gaps that we see, to understand the strengths in a company and how to leverage those, but where are their opportunities for growth? Those are the gaps I'm talking about. So we work together to try to see the gaps, but fill the gaps. So I thought, oh, Sino gap. I guess it you know, can be a play on words, if you will, but... Yeah, and so what? So we do organizational consulting, but we also offer online courses, uh, self-paced on-demand courses in leadership, like emotional intelligence development, resiliency and agility. And I've actually designed a course for teams. So it's called Developing Cohesive Teams. And it's actually, you don't take it as an individual. You sign up your whole team and you experience the course together. So that's, it's you know, I'm, I'm tapping into my instructional design background and wanting to develop learning and development, uh, training, I should say, in a very different way. So that's, I try to do a new, take a, a new approach on what learning and development actually looks like and then, and, and how, how we can actually transfer the things that we learn from online courses or even through a workshop to the workplace. And so I have built-in supports uh, in everything I do, whether it's a face-to-face -face workshop, virtual or an online course, there are always these built-in supports to get you to think about your workplace context and how to apply what you've just learned.
Well, I'm glad that you offer courses, especially on leadership, since I do too. And I think we're going to talk about how training doesn't work. So it's a good thing that we both offer something that we're going to talk about doesn't work, right? Yeah, yeah. Mean, we're making a living of it, right? Right. <laughs> but, uh, what about that? Why don't we go into that? Um, why do you think training doesn't work? Okay. Well, that's that. And I, yeah, I can't wait to get your, your, your take on it as well. So yeah, like I said, one of the reasons why I wanted to shift away from formal training to organizational learning de development is because I wanted to know what was happening in the workplace context and why people couldn't transfer what they were learning. And what I discovered was, and I saw this in, in other courses, especially leadership courses that other organizations were offering because we would send, you know, we would develop our own leadership courses, but we'd also send people to others because obviously we don't have the capacity to develop all these different programs. So we'd partner with the university and they would offer courses. And what I started to understand was the train. So there were a couple of things that I saw training never really addressed the workplace context. And so one of the things that I actually did learn through my PhD is um, we have to, it's hard for us sometimes to, to really think about what we're learning and to transform it, if you will, to fit our workplace context, because training doesn't actually take into consideration our unique context. And you know what the truth is, it's Amen. challenging because especially if you're teaching a university course on leadership and you have people from different companies coming in, how do you address each person's unique workplace context? There are ways to do it actually, but it takes time. Um, and, and, and some finesse, right? And some patience to do it. But a lot of people don't either know how to do it or don't have the patience to do it. So they just don't do it. Or um, they attempt to do it, but the context that they present in the training is completely irrelevant to you. And I'll give you an example. So we were in a government context, right? We're not a for-profit organization. Uh, we design and develop services that we provide to the members of our community and our, and our, our society. So you go to take this leadership course at a university and the case study that they give you. So they're, they're trying to embed context. They're going to give you a case study where you can apply what you've just learned, practice a little bit, if you will. That's their attempt to apply context to the course that you're taking, right? And apply the concepts you're learning. But the case study was a for-profit company who had a VP of marketing and you had to be the VP of uh, marketing and you had a certain sales quota you needed to, to reach and you had sales consultants. And so you were applying the concepts in a case study that was to totally irrelevant to your workplace. And one could argue, yeah, but Joanna, I mean, you could probably figure out how to transfer some of that to your workplace context. But the truth is, and this is what I learned in my PhD, we don't do that. And we do have a hard time doing that. If we don't have the time to reflect on our current knowledge and skills, the, the new knowledge and skills we're learning, how we can integrate that into our, our, our current mental schemas, cognitive schemas, and then how to take that and mold it or transform it to fit our new context. If we don't, it takes time. These are cognitive processes that take time. And we're usually not given that gift of time in the class to do that. Like, as I said, if they give you a case that it's in most cases, it's not necessarily relevant to you. And then when you go to the workplace, there is no time to think about it. You go back to work, you continue doing your job. Most likely you have like a ton of emails waiting for you. 
you know, a lot of people go into courses and you see them checking their emails on the break because they don't want to go back to work with 300 emails in their inbox. So when you get back to work, you hit the ground running again. You don't have time to think about what I just learned and how am I going to apply it? And I think that's one of the primary reasons why training fails. Definitely. I'm... You know, I had a client one time and uh, we, we were presenting some really high level concepts and uh, the, the client said this, I'm paraphrasing, but they said, it would be nice if you had a specific roadmap on how to do this. And, and I think that's an important concept that when it comes to leadership traits and backing up everything you're saying, they're all needles on a compass that point in a direction but it is up to the person to figure out how to fit them into their unique world, right? And and no matter what you know, what I know, neither of us have all the information that our students have. And so they've got to do that, right? Um, I love the term, you know, another thing, the reflection that you mentioned, process mapping, right? That, uh, you know, I think when I, when I study a new leadership concept, there's this part of me that reflects on what I've learned and how can I see those concepts at play in my unique life experience? And we have to give people the room to do that, like you're saying. But, you know, another part of it, I think, is we have to give people the room to fail at trying the new concepts, right? Yes. Because I mean, failure is our teacher, right? right? I mean, we're not going to do it right the first time. Yeah. So, um. Uh, you know, um, I, I just, and I know I'm going off here, but uh, um, I heard somebody say something the other day. I'm going to use uh, nicer words, but they said, you should always be in a state of, holy crap, can I pull this off? And, and that, you know, are you always challenging yourself with these new concepts instead of just being stagnant in the way you've always managed? Can I take a new concept that I've just learned about, I haven't mastered, and be okay being totally uncomfortable going and trying it out in the real world, right? Yeah. And, and we should be that way, shouldn't yeah. we? Oh, let's dig into that because that's, that's actually a very important point too. That And I, I, I discovered through my research as well. So I looked at, okay, how can you support the transfer of learning? And what is the individual's responsibility to do that versus the, I'll call them the educational institution or the, 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 the training company's responsibility to do that? And then the organization's responsibility to do that. So I see, I see everybody playing a role. So let's start with the training company or the or an educational institution, you know, building time into the training course to give people time to reflect on what they've learned, how it, how it fits with their current knowledge and how it, it fits within their workplace context. And also to maybe come up with an action plan to write down like maybe like a bit of a process map. How will I start to, or how will I attempt to try and implement some of these things? So give them an opportunity to do that, whether it's homework, whether it's um, a learning accompaniment, or whether you just give them time to discuss it in a group, right? Or you can even say, I'm not going to give you the case study. The case study needs to include these parameters, but I want you to come up with a workplace context. Like I've done this before where it's like a multi day or multi-month course. We teach the concepts and then we come back and we have a coach team coaching session where one person in the group or two people in the group talk about what they've just learned and how they've applied it to the workplace context. And then we open it to discussion and other people get to learn. So, you know, building time in like that, it's a bit harder to do if it's like a one-shot course one day, you know, but there's there are still ways to do it. 
Then the individual, your, your responsibility. So number one, be an active participant in your learning before, during, and after the course. So think about what am I going to do before? Like, why am I, first of all, why am I taking this course? Am I taking it? Like, what's the purpose of me taking this course? What is it that I hope to achieve? What are, how do my I? boss told me to. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. right. The prisoners that we get in our classes sometimes. Right. So yeah. if, if you're fortunate and, and, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but you know, and this was my case in working in government, whenever times got tough fiscally, training dollars got cut because they saw it as a cost, not as an investment. And, you know, when you just go and take a course because your boss told you like, oh, we got a few extra bucks, we need to spend it, you know, just choose a course out of a hat and go or take this course because it's mandatory. The person comes back and never applies it. You don't see that ROI. And that's why we see it as a cost. But if we do little things like, you know, okay, before you go on this course, why are you taking it? How do you, what is the ultimate outcome? How do you want it to influence your performance. So think about what you want to get out of it. Then go on the course and immerse yourself fully. Like, you know what? Those emails are going to wait for you, whether you answer them in the break, whether you're answering them while the teacher is instructing or whether you do them when you get back. Just this is a gift of time for you. So treat, you deserve it. So enjoy that moment, fully immerse yourself in it and do the activities as they're laid out. And if there isn't kind of like a case study built in where you get to apply your own context, then do it on your own. After the course, take some time or the next day at work, schedule an hour, sum up at some point in your day to reflect on what you've just learned and how you're going to apply it. And then maybe, and I know we've talked about this before, teach it to somebody else. Bring it to your team. If you took it, chances are it's relevant to other people. Teach it back and then say, these are some of the things I learned. Hey, how do you think we can apply this? How do you think this can make us more effective as a team? How do you think this could better our performance and our efficiency? I think that will go a long way. But then you said something else that I thought was really interesting. Um, what was Say that expression again, what he said. I loved it. Say it again. Uh, it, it, was, it was a she, but it was holy crap. You should be in a constant state of holy crap when I pull this off in a slightly more vulgar version. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you have to, you know, give yourself permission to try it and to not be perfect at it. Right. But one of the things that also is critical in helping us or uh, apply things that new concepts is confidence. So being resilient and agile means, you know, taking a risk means you have to be somewhat resilient and agile because, you know, anytime you take or anytime you try something new or apply something new, there's some inherent risk there because you may fail. So what helps us be more resilient and agile is not just grit and, 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 you know, we can go more into like the um, competencies that we need to develop on an individual level to develop resiliency and agility, but the relationships we have with others can help us with our confidence. So if you have somebody that you can, a mentor, okay, so a mentor, somebody, and you may not even think of them as a mentor, but this is somebody you know that you can reach out to when you need some feedback, when um, you're having a tough day, when you know you need somebody to kind of like lift your spirits up. But somebody will be honest with you and tell you like it is. They won't sugarcoat it. They won't blow smoke up your ass. Like they'll be honest with you because you need that. They need you need to know when you're doing a really good job and you also need to know when you need to pick up the slack or you need to do something a bit different or change the way you're approaching something. Right. So these individuals really help with our confidence. So we know if we can take a risk or try something new and we, we fail at it, uh, 
we know that we have people that we can rely on that will support us and give us honest feedback and, and won't um, necessarily reprimand us in a negative way because we took a risk, if that makes sense. Oh, yes, totally. I mean, in, in you're throwing all this good stuff at me. So there's a few things I'd like to expand on. Um, one, yes, that that you know, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance, right? So there's a fine line there. And and confidence is great. Confidence, and this is Philip's definition, is uh, I'm, I'm totally, I'm confident that I can pull this off. I can wing it, but I may not be a, an A plus at it. And that's okay too. The failures I experience will teach me to be an A plus. I'm uh, uh, Marie Forleo, uh, the, the way she says it, that you should aim for B minus work because that's how you become an A. And some people don't have the confidence to ever start without being an A already. So they never get anything done. So I, I have mm -hmm. to be willing mm -hmm. to go fall on my face a little bit and accept that success and failure are intertwined, right? Um, you know, you said something about feedback that um, I, I was studying uh, Cy Wakeman, her book, No Ego. I've been reading that. So her, a lot of her concepts are on my mind right now. But she was talking a lot about feedback that all feedback is not good, but feedback is good. And where's the feedback coming from? And, and, she, and she says it this way. I'm paraphrasing again that feedback from people that hold themselves personally accountable and are always growing is great feedback. But feedback from people who sit in the chair and judge everybody and don't do anything is is crap, right? Mm -hmm. So love the thing on the feedback. Um, that's great too. All right, jo Joanna, I know you probably got a lot of thoughts, but I want to take you back for yeah. a minute because there's something else. Um, you talked a lot about when we do training, how what people need to do with it afterwards. And, and that's really for those who want to grow and learn, right? Yeah. And I don't know what your experience is, but doing leadership training, there's been several times where people sent me students and the goal was for me to fix them. Mm. And, and when I think of what we're talking about right now, we're coaching people to be better human beings, right? Better leaders. And you know, I think the first the first stage of coaching is gaining the person's permission. So when it comes to leadership training, we have to have their permission to even train them. Now, a lot of times we don't. The company said you go to uh, Joanna's class or something like that, and and we never gain their permission. And and so I've been struggling with this concept that should should we stop allowing everybody to come to the class? And, and should we communicate to the client that, no, only your people that already are a B minus or your people that are already holding themselves personally accountable, that that's who gets to come to your class. Mm -hmm. But if they're a bad leader and they're not willing to grow, I can't fix them. What right. do you think about that? Yeah. You know, actually, I, I interviewed a woman named Natalie Blaine. She's the co-founder of Canada Coach Academy. So it's it's one of the organ educational organizations uh, that you can go to. Uh, they're, they're linked with the International Coaching Federation. So they're, they're kind of certified through them to offer coaching. So I interviewed her on one of my podcasts. And I said, are there people who are coachable and other people are not? And we're using the term coachable, but it's the same thing, you know, whether you're in a one-on-one -on -one coaching session Trainable. or you're 
yeah. trainable, right? You're a student in a class, right? Kind of the same concept or same thing that we're talking about. And she goes, yeah, you have to have, like you said, a growth mindset. Somebody needs to to want to grow, understand that there's room for improvement and, and they want support to get there. They're not happy with the status quo. It could be for a number of reasons. Maybe, you know, maybe you're happy with the status quo because, you know, at this point in your life, you're okay. You, there's a lot going on for you and you're not in a growth mindset right now. You, you don't want a lot of change. And I think we've all experienced that in our lives. Like, I, I mean, I've had moments in my life where I'm like, oh, I, I don't want a new job. I don't want a new experience right now. I need to kind of get through this moment before I can be open to anything else, you know? Um, whether that's a personal crisis or you have a new job, well, that's a lot of growth right there. But you know what I mean? Like there's something going on in your life. So sometimes people don't want to grow, not for necessarily bad reasons, but we all know some people that just think they're perfect and there's no room for And, and their life's working out, right? And I mean, their life's working. They? Right. Yeah. Right. My best growth moments came from suffering, right? I mean, mm. that was the trigger for them when life wasn't, you know, whether it's a divorce or whatever it is, those those bad moments is where I chose to grow. Right. And, and, and some people, their life's going just fine. So yeah. why do I need to change? Right. Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I don't know that I, I need to change, then, then there's no motivation there. Right. Um, you know, and some of the best experiences I've had just had one recently with some one-on-one -on -one coaching and, and the, the gentleman was struggling. He, he had some, a major project that went south on him. And that was the motivation for him to grow. Okay. Right. So yeah. we need the right people, don't we? The right people deserve the training. See, what yeah. And that's, yeah. Okay. So that's interesting too, because you know, how to approach that. You know, sometimes I don't get to choose, right? Like you don't get to choose who's in there. And, mm -hmm. and I just had a conversation with a client where they were using like a, a, a leadership program to train everybody in the organization, regardless of position, rank, whatever. And I'm like, it can't be like a, a one size. That's another reason why training fails. It's a one size fits all approach. Um, and, and it doesn't work. And so there's that, that we need to be cognizant of, and we need to make sure that whatever training we're offering is, you know, designed to meet the needs of a very target audience. So I think that can help with that a bit. But then again, there may be some people that don't have that gross mindset. So sometimes I'm reluctant to say that because you never really know the impact you'll have on somebody. And when somebody will have an aha moment or have that moment where sure. they'll develop self-awareness. And so I always say, I always, when I talk about leadership, I say it starts with self-awareness and, and coaching believes that too. You have to be self-aware of where you're at, where you want to go. If you're happy where you're at, or, you know, you feel like there's room for growth, where are your strengths? We need to embrace those. I don't think a lot of people actually can clearly articulate their strengths and, and be proud of what those are. Um, and I don't know if this is a gender thing. I see a lot of women struggling, you know, and there's this confidence gap theory that's out there too. And I have my thoughts on that, but so, you know, if, if you, you know, I like to approach leadership always with that, like the, let's develop some self-awareness and let's say, spend some time in that, 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 that space and uncover our blind spots. And I'm hoping through that experience, even if somebody's a prisoner in that, in that course, they don't necessarily have a growth mindset. Uh, they may have an aha moment through those activities or through those conversations. And I, I don't know who that is or isn't. And we can't help everybody. But I always see it as every person that's in that workshop with me 
is it's an opportunity for them and it's an opportunity for me. And my goal is to help people. And if I can do that for one person, I can't help everybody. I won't have an impact on everybody, but because I don't know who I may have an impact on, I welcome everyone. If that, you know, if I'm articulating that myself well. And, and I think, you know, there's that analogy of the starfish, you know, that poor sucker who's <laughs> on the beach throwing the starfish back into the ocean. People are like, what are you doing? Like, you know, it's like, but you're wasting your time with the starfish. And it's like, man, that one starfish that makes it back deep into the ocean. You know, I've changed the life of that one starfish. Like, I don't know who that starfish will be in my class. So I, I welcome everyone. And I see it as an opportunity for us to get to know one another, to have a good time. Let's have some fun. And if you right. didn't initially want to be there, you know, you may change your mind at the end. And actually, this actually reminds me of a story, if I can share it really quick. Yeah. I was I was sent to, I did some work with Interpol, and they sent me to... Barbados uh, for one of their Caribbean conferences. So what they do is they have, you know, they have uh, Interpol has member countries. I, I forgot how many, 160 member countries. And what they do is they have conferences in different parts of the world where they teach the member country countries like how to use some of their systems and databases to, to, to catch international terrorists and criminals, right? But they need to teach these officers how to teach some of the things that they've learned through a an Interpol conference to the officers back in their home country. And so they brought me in to teach them um, how to our instructional design 101 course, like how to design training, adult learning principles, what engagement looks like, how to teach to a diverse population, all of that. And when I walked in, oh my God, like nobody was happy that I was there. One guy was slumped in his chair with his sunglasses on and his laptop. I couldn't even see his face. He had it open. Like I had, they were all prisoners. I'm like, oh my God, it's not going to be fun. And, and I just, I, the way I teach is like, I really introduce who I am. I try to break the ice with people. And I also start with, I, I'm vulnerable with them. And I talk to them about who I am, what I hope to get, you know, what the purpose of this course is, what the outcomes will be. But then I, I pay respects to them. I say, you guys have so much experience in this room. By no means do I know everything. I know a lot. I'm here for a reason, but you have so much experience. And so over the next four days, it's not just going to be me we're going to engage in this learning opportunity together. And by the end of the first day, the guy had his sunglasses off and his laptop was closed. You know what he was doing? As I was speaking and teaching, he was checking me. I'd make a reference to something. He would, he'd go on, on Wikipedia and, and make sure that my references were I know accurate. If you're right. Yeah. Does she really know that what she's talking right. about? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. That's right. And, and then, you know, at the end of the, 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 of the program, we, I remember we all went out karaoke and we're having a great time. And, and they started to talk to me and they said, one of the reasons why they didn't want to, they weren't really engaged is because they had somebody from uh, an, another organization come in to teach to them and they were teaching down to them. Like they were from a third world country right. and didn't know anything. And so what I realized is, even though you may have prisoners, it's an opportunity for you to see it as a, as a challenge, but to see it as a chance to get to know people. And I feel like anytime that you really, you don't use the lecture approach, but you use a, and, and that goes back to context. Let's spend time getting to know you and giving you an opportunity to share your experience and your context and how to apply what you're learning. People will open up and usually that prisoner perception or, or approach to learning will start to melt away from my experience. Right. Right. No, totally with you. I'm, you know, uh, 
I, I wish that I could pick and choose all the, the growth-minded people would come to the class, but you're right. I've, I've had breakthroughs, and some of them were over six months of multiple courses. Wow. And I remember this one guy, it was six months later, and he, and he, he was graduating. It was this big series at, at Georgia Tech, and he says, uh, Philip, I want you to know that I'm you know, I'm still struggling with some of these things you're teaching, but you have made me think differently. And and so it was great, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. Was he perfect at it? It's just that you were making an impact. And so that is true. Um, you know, you know, I think that th- there needs to be some kind of level there that, that we want to introduce topics, right? And and you like you mentioned self-awareness. Um and I use these terms loosely, but I, I use them a lot. The limbic brain and the prefrontal cortex, right? Most of our population is unaware. Are they thinking through their dog-like limbic brain or are they thinking through their Carl Jung prefrontal cortex, right? <laughs> and can they notice the thoughts, right? And and so in training, that's great because a lot of people are just completely unaware of that. And, and if you give them some examples, even those who don't really embrace leadership concepts, they'll notice that whole thing and their behavior and, and maybe that's what they get out of it. Where some people, um, you know, I can think of this other lady I've been talking with lately, and we were talking about what is it that observes the limbic brain of the prefrontal cortex, and, you know, some call it consciousness, some call it the soul, and she was just all into all the scientific evidence backing up how that's true, and so that person she's going to blow that out of the water, right? I mean, mm-hmm. she's going to take that concept. She's still sending me stuff all the time on, on her studies on that. And so there's where I want to focus the majority of my efforts. I still want to focus on the arguer, right? But should I, should we give more of what we have to those who have the bigger growth mindset? And I think the answer is yes, that we mm-hmm. can, oh, we yeah. can give different percentage. We should believe in everybody, but yep. some people are deserving more of what you have to offer them than others. Right. right? Yeah. I'm not going to chase down somebody who isn't, you know, doesn't seem really that engaged. You know, I've had people like that in my class where you're just like, yeah, this is not, I'm not getting to them. And so I don't focus so much on them. I'll focus on the people that are really engaged, asking questions and want that support. Right. Yeah, so definitely, like you will always have people like that in our teams and in our training courses. So I agree, you know, like everyone's welcome. It's an opportunity. But at the end of the day, if what I'm saying and doing it doesn't look like it's getting through to them, then, you know, that's fine. That's okay. I'm not going to force my concepts down their throat. But I want to ask you this. This is funny. There's been people in my classroom like, oh, they hated it. And then they'd write a survey and they had glowing things to say. I was like, I didn't even think you were listening. Oh my God. And so our perceptions of what people are absorbing sometimes is, and it goes back to like prefrontal face sometimes. Right. Right. And you know, sometimes our perceptions, well, you know, and you, like we shared some notes back and forth before we we met today. And, and you wrote something in your notes about, you know, we have these biases, you know, and if we want to yeah. link that to the prefrontal cortex, which is all about cogn- cognition, thinking, rational thought, controlling impulses in the limbic system, which is like where our emotions and our memories are kind of grounded and rooted in, you know, when we form these biases or these perceptions, there's risk in that because, uh, well, we have, we, we have categories, we have our biases. It, it helps us make sense of the world for sure. But sometimes it can lead us to having assumptions that go unchecked could be wrong. And, and, and sometimes I think I'm so, you know, 
bang on with this one person in terms of how they're processing and absorbing it. And I'm, and I couldn't be further from the truth, but other times my perceptions are accurate. So yeah, no, I still agree. Like I, I do agree with you. If, if somebody doesn't feel engaged and they're not there and they're not connecting and there are other people that are, then you need to connect with them. And I think that's the role of a leader too. The squeaky wheel gets the most attention, yes. you know, and which it, is it, wrong sometimes, I know. isn't it? Right. Yeah. It's like parenting, you know, your kids screaming and yelling, you know, you're like, if, if you don't stop, you're not going to McDonald's, they don't stop and you still take them to McDonald's. Like, you know, you like they learn if I am that squeaky wheel, I'll get the most of the attention and it's wrong. Right. And so we shouldn't be doing that as trainers, right. Or um, educators. And we shouldn't be doing it as leaders necessarily. It doesn't mean you stop and you give up uh, on people, but at the same time, yeah, like, you know, somebody is there and they want to grow and they have a lot of potential and they want your support, then you need to, to make that time for them. Yeah. Okay. So great points. Um, you know, one, that whole thing about the squeaky wheel that, you know, what is the squeaky wheel? It's the limbic brain, right? I mean, it's that dog like brain we have that's barking mm -hmm. and, and, you know, what is that contemplative Carl Jung brain? It's meditating and, and processing what you're saying. So it's going to be a lot quieter. So it's natural for us to want to give attention to the squeaky wheel. Um, you know, this is another thing from Cy Wakeman. So applying these same concepts we're talking about in classrooms to organizations. Um, so Cy Wakeman, she, she was doing some research. And in her research, she found that the average manager spends 2.5 hours a day dealing with drama. Mm -hmm. Dealing with the ego from that emotional limbic brain, mm -hmm. and what a, a, a what a waste of profit that is, right? And then at the same time, those who do choose to grow, how much attention are we giving them? Because they're being quite, they're getting their job done, and so we're leaving them alone, right? And and so the the, the main concept that she was trying to explain is that we need to get better at shifting people away from venting and complaining to solution-based thinking. So for example, it, it's, you know, a lot of people have the open door policy and I, I see it all the time in my world. You can come to me and talk about anything. So what that really means is you can come to me and complain about everything. But most people are complaining about circumstance. You know, like they're complaining that it's raining today, right? Oh, good luck, go talk to God, right? And tell them to change it. And so, um, you know, I love this question. She has a bunch of questions to propose, but one of them is, what does great look like? And I think that's a great one that I've been using a lot lately to diffuse the venting drama, ego-based conversation that's complaining on the about the way things are. Like, this client wants the job done too soon. Too bad. We agreed to it, right? I mean, it's not like management's going to go, oh, you don't like that? Let me go ahead and revise the contract. They're not going to do that. So what does great look like considering our circumstance? And, and that whole concept, can we shift people away most, and, and I see it everywhere, you know, the more you're aware, most of the complaining and griping and suffering I hear from people, they're complaining about what can't be changed. Who's the president or something like that? You know, you can't change it. Right. But can we as leaders redirect people towards that solution-based thinking? I think we can. Yeah. If oh. we can get them to ask the right questions. What, what do you think, Joanne? Oh, I'm, yeah. Okay. I almost I, I want to bring it back a little bit to and link the two things that you're saying. When you talked about uh, embracing failure, 
because sometimes if we're waiting for like the gold standard, we'll never launch. And I've seen people do that. Um, and then so it's like, and, and then going back to somebody who's complaining about circumstance. And if I can give a personal example, uh, when I was a senior manager of one team, uh, my team, so one of the things I did, I, I, I became kind of known as the, oh, I don't want to call it the fixer. I don't like that name. But when there was a team that was struggling to be efficient, effective, and cohesive, I would be the person that would be brought in. And I loved working with teams like that. They'd been labeled and I hated when they got labeled. Cause I'm like, if you label a team, they will, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They will live to the standard that you've put on them. And so I go in and I say, I'd like to transform teams. And so I'd go in and, and through different exercises and activities, we became a very efficient team so much so that we became like a rock star team, the go-to team for big, complex projects with ridiculous timelines. <laughs> so they, it was almost as if they were doing it on purpose just to see how we would deal with it. Like we would get a project. Where's the that line? We, yeah. yeah. It's like two weeks you have. I'm like, this is a three month project. We have to, this is a project that to, to be done it with a high, st- not even a high standard, but a good standard. Like we need, okay. Give us two months. No, you got like two weeks. Oh my God. I'm like, okay. So being very, very cohesive as a team and ensuring that I had put time into the team to develop and to get us to that point was critical. And that's another conversation, but now we're here. Now we're, we're like, oh my God, we, we have two weeks to get this done. And it didn't matter how efficient and effective we were there. The limbic brain was barking at all of us, right? Like we can't do this. We've been set up to fail. And like you said, too bad. This was a timeline that was negotiated with the higher ups in the organization. You know, the senior political figures have come to us and say that they want this to happen and we have to make it happen. And so I used to say to them, let's, what can we do? Um, you know, what kind of mindset can we create for ourselves? So what are the expectations that we're placing on ourselves? So I used to say, here are the circumstances. These are the parameters that we have to function within. We have two weeks. What can we achieve? But we should do this. No, 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 no. It's not about should, you know, it's what can we do? So these are the new expectations and the parameters. If you wanted to deliver the Rolls Royce, forget it. Let's deliver the Honda Civic. It's good. It works. It will get us there. E and it minus won't, work. Yep. It won't break down. <laughs> so I know you guys are exceptional. I know you guys deliver amazing content and quality. And everybody else knows that you can. That's the reason why they've come to us to do the impossible. So you may know that you're not putting your best work forward, but nobody else knows that. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm not trying to say, you know, strive for mediocrity, but I used to say, eh, well, we had a value, strive for excellence. I'm like, you know, scrap that, strive for mediocrity. <laughs> and right. you know what? That's our right. our mediocrity is somebody else's excellence. We do great work. Just do it and we'll learn from it. And I this is what I did to to help my team through it. I'd say we're going to draft a report after about lessons learned and what we need going forward in the future. And you know, honest Philip, we we would draft those all the time. We got very efficient at writing them because uh, you'd always request the same thing in the future. We never got it, but it was one way for us to at least put kind of our, uh, to be able to express what we could have done if we had been given the circumstances, uh, the right circumstances to achieve it and what we could potentially do to, to, to get more time in the future. We would do that. We would try to do that. But so like you said, it's just uh, 
my job as a leader was to say, okay, help them with their confidence, reset the, the, the expectation of what we needed to do and shift their perceptions to around, you know, what we needed to get done. And so, and that, that did help. It wasn't always fun, but it, it helped us move forward. And I do think a leader's job is to not let their limbic brain take over, uh, but to take a deep breath and use a prefrontal cortex. Although, you know, the limbic system exists for a reason and our emotions are important. Yes. There, there are instincts, yeah. there are spidey senses and we need to pay attention to them. We can't ignore them. Uh, but at the same time, we can't let them rule us to the point where we just engage in the, oh my God, the world is falling chicken little. That's not going to help anything either. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, forgiveness too, that, um, you know, when you look at your dog barking limbic brain that it's um it has unlimited energy right i can wake up in the middle of the night and hear a bump and and my limbic brain's ready to judge it emotionally and go forward and it's a great thing in that moment um but you know my prefrontal cortex runs out of steam and so it's good to forgive myself as much as i'd love to think like you know albert einstein all the time it's just not going to happen because i don't have the same unlimited energy so i think a little forgiveness is, is yeah. good there too right i think especially um, during this time uh like even just to make it a bit personal for myself like woof, i mean yeah the amount of changes that everyone is going through right now and and the ability to just forgive ourselves is because our prefrontal cortex, like you said, are like are just on overdrive, and I feel like there's steam coming out of my ear sometimes, and I, I'm exhausted from it all. You know, my emotions are constantly overwhelming me, and my brain's constantly trying to calm me, and I'm trying to embrace risk and new challenges, but I'm it's exhausting. Like this, this is a year of change and and growth, and we, yeah. we need to see it like that. But we, I like what you said. We need to show ourselves some grace gratitude and compassion and and sometimes to be like you know okay this sucks and and i need a break and i need to hit pause for a moment because we won't we right. we can't sustain this yeah you know you were talking about bias earlier and um you know for a long time i used to think that hindsight bias was the the greatest bias form of bias documented there in psychology but um you know, I saw another study recently and it was talking about the bias that people don't think they're biased mm. and that, that this individual did a study and they asked everybody in the room, do you think you're less biased than the, the other people in this room? And, and the majority said yes, which couldn't be statistically true, right? And, and so that, that bias does exist. We do struggle with that, with judging other people. And you know, I think it's compounded by, uh, I know you're in Canada and I'm in the U.S., but, uh, you know, over here, we're really good at having a lot of news stations say, you should judge this group of folks over here. And and so that increases the bias, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, that that understanding why people see the world differently than you and, and taking the time to learn from that is, is such an enlightening thing, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have any tools for that? Anything you do to help people... Yeah become more aware of their bias or, or, or learn to see that the other person has information that could help them. Anything you do on that? Yeah. That you'd like to well, share. One of the things I learned as a leader that like, you know, we, we have people that walk into our office and want to throw their, the monkey that's on their back onto us. And it's usually they want to complain about the context or someone else. 
that they have a bias against. And I like Stephen Covey's, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people. One of them is seek to understand before being understood. I think at, at, the, at the bare minimum, anytime you have a bias, and, and I heard Brene Brown talk about this, anytime that you get, going back to limbic system, you get defensive, you get angry. You got to stop yourself and say, wait a second, wait a second. Where is that coming from? Why am I feeling like this? Is it because I have a bias about something and I'm being challenged on that right now and, I'm, and I have these emotions? So see that as an opportunity to pay more attention to what's going on emotionally, physically, and cognitively, and then seek to understand. So, you know, to ground it in, a, in an actual example, life, real life example, I had somebody come into my, we, we were just in a, in a manager, manager's meeting and the tension was so, it, it was so big. Like it had its own presence in the room. You could literally pull up a chair and you could sit, ask Mr. Tension to sit down with us. It was like, you know, he, he, he had his own entity. And so one guy comes into my office, he's like, you know, Jennifer, oh my God, Jennifer, she's out to get me. And I'm like, what? She is out to get, that was his bias about Jennifer. He wasn't seeking to understand. He wasn't stopping to understand how his emotions were getting his brain to think, right? He was feeling something. It was gut reaction and out the words were coming out of his mouth. How she was out to get him. A colleague of ours was out to get him. And then he says, but that's okay. It's not a big deal. She doesn't mean that much to me. And no one noticed. I'm like, what are you talking about? Nobody noticed. Everybody noticed. Like I said, he had his own secret in the room. Tension was there in the room. We all saw it. We all felt it. It was extremely uncomfortable. It was one of the worst meetings we ever had. And then we had to talk through it and we had to talk about your, what are your biases? Let's, let's put them on the table. What makes you feel like, it was like a coaching moment. What makes you feel like, what is the evidence that you have that she's out to get you? What are some other stories that are out there? And what have you done to double check that assumption that you have. Because now if you move forward without checking it, what are the consequences to that? To, the, to you and your relationship with her, this is a person you work with every day and have to interact with every day. If you don't check that bias, you're going to engage in that self-fulfilling prophecy where, where everything she does and says will confirm your bias if left unchecked. How will that impact the rest of the team? And let me tell you, I'll tell you exactly how it'll impact the team because this is how it impacted me in the meeting. And so if you don't have, going back to like feedback, if you don't have that person that can check you and those biases, you have to do it yourself. So listen to your gut feeling, embrace that gut feeling, but but pause and think about why you're feeling that. Anytime you have like a real adverse reaction to something, you know, it's like stop and think about where is this coming from and then seek to understand. That's one thing. On a real, another individual level, what to do is a 360 assessment. And so I have this built into my online course around emotional intelligence and leadership. And I've, I've, taken on uh, 360 assessments. I've developed my own 360 assessments, a variety of them that we've done in various organizations. And I, I landed on one very simple one that two, I, I, other, other people have talked about how they've done these surveys. And I'm like, oh my God, it's the simplest thing ever. Let me try it. It's like a four or five question survey, basic questions that you would send to as many people as you can. Direct reports, colleagues, bosses, family, friends, where you get them to give you feedback. And it's it's not anonymous. 
you know who's giving you the feedback. You can they can give you the context too in terms of the feedback that they're giving you giving you the feedback. And it's easy, it's it's I find 360s are better when they're not anonymous because when you know who's saying it, there's that context. There's that context again. You need that context right. to understand why are they yes. saying what they're saying. And so, like, what's three adjectives that best describe me? When have you seen me thriving? at my best. Uh, what do you think I do well? What do you think I don't do well? Uh, and you can ask other questions there to try and uncover what some of your blind spots are. Cause you don't know what your blind spots are. That's why they're a blind spot. You don't know what you don't know. And some of the feedback you get is like, I, I did it. And, and so I've built it into these courses because I'm like, this actually works. And I got one piece of feedback from a direct report where she said, you're really good at having these really big grand ideas and sharing them with us, but you move so quickly through your ideas that sometimes people are panicking, uh, silently panicking in the room and you're slow to pick up on that. She was basically telling me you're not very, you're not very perceptive of other people and their emotions mm -hmm. and their how they're reacting to something because you're really focused on you. She said it in a very nice way, but I knew who yeah. said it and I knew exactly the context that she was referring uh, to and and that was a huge a, a moment of awakening for me as a leader. That was a blind spot I had and a bias that I had that my ideas were awesome and everybody could just follow along with me. And I would leave everybody in the dust. I'd leave thinking everybody knew what we were doing. Happy that you know people were gonna just deliver and people were actually freaking out because they didn't know what to do. Oh my god! Like that was uh, thank God she shared that with me. So I think that's another way to check our biases. But it takes a certain amount of confidence and it goes back to that growth mindset. You won't do it if you don't want to know. You have to, you have to want to know what you don't know. You have to put yourself out there and you have to expose yourself to a certain level of discomfort and, and right. hearing some things. But, you know, like I said, these are people, the people that care about you will respond. And hopefully, you know, a couple of people that are hold you accountable. And like I said, not blow smoke, smoke up your ass. And, and when you do get the feedback, it's never as bad as you think it is. And even the, the constructive feedback is so helpful. So I think that those are my, my, my recommendations. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I'm, and this is another Marie Forleo comment that, uh, anytime somebody gives you feedback and I think she says judges you, but, uh, you should consider their body of work. And, and so sometimes you might get some bad feedback, but that, individual has no idea what it takes to do the job you do right mm -hmm. um but also yeah there are things that we can become aware of that we might not see we do have blind spots on things too so yeah feedback's good uh, you know how much uh, i i'm still jury's still out for me on it okay that that you know sometimes um i i get judgments like i'll just hey the podcast here i had a guy tell me one time you shouldn't do podcasts uh, why not? Well, you should write articles instead. And where was it coming from? It was coming from, that's what he did. he never did a podcast. He wrote articles. And so that's where it was coming from. So was it good for me? No, it wasn't good for me, but there have been other times that, uh, you know, I, I've been a little too out there and, and said exactly what I thought and thinking that was the right thing to do and hurting people's feelings in the process and did have a blind spot on that. So yeah, feedback is good. Now, so let's go back to um, the 360 degree. That, that's all great. The, those day-to-day -day interactions, somebody walks in your office and says, Jennifer's out to get me, right? Mm -hmm. I, I liked that story there. Let's go back to that for a minute that um, when Jennifer's out to get me, 
in my experience, most of the time, sometimes not, but most of the time, we we intensify those stories in ourselves, and they're always a heck of a lot worse than they actually are in the real world, right? Yeah. And that sometimes I think leaders can do a good job at why are you telling me this? Mm-hmm. Why don't you go talk to Jennifer about it? Mm-hmm. And and you know, once you go find out, just t- tell her exactly what you think and see what she says. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we'll find out that we're we're blowing up this mm. this big story in our minds, and and the internal stories are always worse than the real world, right? I mean, ninety nine percent of the time, yes. they're 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 the worse than the real world. So, can we get better at pointing them back to that? You know, oh yeah, get, you know, absolutely, yeah. I mean, like that's, you know, I always say like, you, you why did you come to to drop a grenade and leave? What was the purpose of that? Right. You know, right. sometimes, sometimes it's person just needs to vent and then you, you need to hold them accountable to that venting. Cause like, you need to like, why are you doing that? And, and what, what is the outcome of this? If you continue down this path, right. And that's the conversation I had with this guy. If you don't go check your assumptions with her, what are the consequences? What we'll do to the team, what we do with her, your relationship with her. And I've had people and, 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 if you don't check that, if you don't encourage people, if you don't turn them 180 degrees outside of your office to push them in the direction where they need to go to speak to that person, you can quickly have a very toxic work environment on your hands because then that becomes the norm and that becomes accepted to, to, to just vent to other people. But I also like to challenge people because sometimes people, this has actually happened to me, where somebody's come to my office and said, hey, listen, I know so-and-so may be returning back to work. I just want to let you know what they said about you. and out the person left. And I was like, that was a grenade that they just dropped. And I was like, why did you do that? You did it because you, you don't like the person who's coming back and you're looking for allies called triangulation. You know, you, that's an anger management technique going back to my nonprofit days, working with at risk youth and teaching them anger management. It's a triangulation technique. There's one person you don't like. And so you get a another person to become your ally by telling them how awful and horrible this person is. And chances are that that person doesn't like you either. And that's how you get this culture of, you know, rumors and gossip. And that becomes the norms. You have to challenge them and you have to have them go back and check that assumption. And you can't engage in that kind of negative thinking. You can help them walk through it and explore, but you know, a a shout out to Vic Mirage because this guy was brought in. He was a consultant to work with our our company many years ago before I got into leadership development because we were such a toxic work environment. We had a new executive director come in and this guy literally the first week spent, he spent the first week on one-on-ones, people crying in his office about how so-and-so is horrible and -and so-and-so is horrible. And you know, like it was the drama. And so he brought this guy and and he had a concept called unstoppable conversations. And he always said like he, he embraced Covey's, you know, concept of seek to understand before being understood. And he said, the only thing that's real in life is, is he goes like, think of a conversation like you and me, what is, what is absolutely a hundred percent fact and real that I have headsets on you're in your house. I'm in my house and I'm using a computer. Like if there was a CCT camera to capture this, the only thing that was tangible and real that we could actually say without doubt was fact were the tangible things in the office, but everything else is based on our perception. I perceive how this conversation is going one way and you're perceiving it another and for the most part, it works just fine. You, you, you build relationships with people, you get along with people, you network and, and you, and life is good. 
But when a conversation doesn't go the way you think, that's when perceptions can really bite you in the ass and get you into trouble. Because I'll walk, you'll say something, I'll be like, Philip's an asshole. <laughs> walk away. We'll disconnect. Sometimes. And I'll be like, yeah. And then that, that will be my narrative. And, and so he said, don't do that. What is a better interpretation of what happened? And then he had us pick somebody in the room who he had this negative perceived interaction with. And we had to sit them down and talk to them. And I actually decided to call a guy who I had worked with years before, who I thought was an asshole. Oh, I mean, I thought he was a devil. I would walk into my friend's, my colleague's office and drop a grenade every day to the point where I actually apologized to her because I saw it was, when you do that, you destroy somebody else's soul. Like she, she did not, she's like, oh, here comes Joanne again. Oh, how do I tell her to stop complaining? Like she didn't know how to, to turn me around and send me to him, right? And this is a terrible thing too, Philip. I actually went to my boss one day and I said, I feel like this guy's bullying me. I want to talk to him directly. Don't do that. You're going to ruin your career. That's what she said to me. It was the worst advice she could have ever given me. So she allowed me to continue on with my narrative and my self-fulfilling prophecy that he was an asshole. Anyways, I leave, I go to another organization and here's Vic Mirage saying, reach out to that person. And I'm like, should I call him? So I called him. I emailed one of my contacts from my old job. No I have his number. And I called him. The guy was like, I think he fell off of his chair. And I said to him, I always thought when you did A, B, and C that you're doing it purposely to bully me and blah, 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 blah. But this is a different interpretation of why you were doing what you were doing, which is a better interpretation. And then I apologized for my narrative of him, which was toxic. And yeah, it was a very good conversation, but you have to believe that the other person isn't out to get. You have to believe that there's inherent good in this individual and you need to give them a chance. That's where it all starts. Uh, and if you're not That's willing right. to do that, you know, and it's, you can't just say like that guy said to me, it's okay, John, it's not a big deal. Nobody else notices. I'll whatever. And I'm like, no, no, everybody notices. Everybody notices. You're really making everybody stay really bad. You need to deal with right. this. You need to go and talk to her. So think about that when you're a leader or even as an individual contributor, when somebody comes into your office to lay a grenade, you're like, just, you know, it's, it, you have a responsibility to hold them accountable. And, you know, even let's just say, even that it's true, Jennifer's out to get you. Right. Mm. Jennifer is out to get you. Let's okay. That. Well, those are the circumstances we have to survive in then. Right. So yeah. now what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We still got to do that. You know, as a, right. as a woman working in law enforcement. Yeah. You know, there are definitely times where you're like, mm, you know, sexism and misogyny in the workplace exists. It's a real thing. And there's some jerks that you work with and it's a real thing. And yeah, then you tap into some other skill sets to try to deal with that. But ultimately you don't necessarily want to start in that position, you know, like everybody's a jerk and out to get you. Okay. So we've had some great conversation Um, before we go. Could we talk a little bit about the difference between a manager and a leader and maybe some, some ideas out there on what the difference is and maybe some misconceptions. And could you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So manager versus leader. Uh, I used to think they were the same. And then I, I learned slowly through my research that they're very different. I got really educated quickly uh, for my research, which I then validated through existing theories that exist in the literature, you know, um, that it they're, they're not the same. They're very different. Okay. So 
they exist on a continuum, I would say. Uh, I, I don't want to say that one is better than the other. Not at all. They exist on a continuum. And sometimes you need more from one than the other. And they both have very distinct competencies that fall under each. So let's start with manager. Uh, so we're looking at manager, not you know, yeah, in the term of a formal position, let's say, right? Uh, you have maybe that de designated title that you're a manager or your formal supervisor. And there are four competencies that fall under that. One is overseeing systems and and processes um, could be your your policies. It could be um, IT systems that you have in place. You know, project software, things like that. Right? These are your systems and your processes that you oversee and you monitor, and you ensure that you're leveraging. You systems thinking is another one. Understanding how what you do. Uh, impacts the organization, understanding how, you know, the trends that your industry is experiencing and going through and trying to predict them, like understanding the whole system that you function within, how what you do impacts it, uh, allocating resources, you know, so budgets, staffing, um, scheduling, you know, things like that. And then last but not least, and more importantly, achieving results. You have to achieve goals. Right. You have to achieve results. You have to, you know, successfully complete projects. That's the management, right? It's very much ticking the boxes. It's it's very much thinking with the head. I call it the head. This is like the strategy, the head. Um, and ensuring that people have the tools, which I call the hands, you know, to, to be able to do what they need to do. On the other end of the continuum is leadership. And leadership, you don't have to have a formal title to possess the competencies that fall within that that domain or that part of the continuum. And through my That's research, right. what I discovered based on everything that my participants were saying, I actually I, I took all of the all their data and I created four categories. And I looked at the four categories and I'm like, oh my God, these are the domains of emotional intelligence. Maybe they're named a bit differently, but for the for the most part, they are the domains of emotional intelligence. And, and it wasn't like I was looking at the literature on emotional intelligence and comparing it. I, I actually went back to find the literature on emotional intelligence to see if what I was finding existed in science already. And it did. And it, it, it was an amazing moment. I'll never forget that moment when I was looking at the data plastered all over my wall. I was like, oh my God, this is EI. It was self-awareness. Uh, where are my, what are my strengths? What are my areas of growth? It's all about a growth mindset and wanting to learn more about your blind spots and things like that. Uh, the second one is self-management. Are you able to regulate your emotions, embrace them, understand them, be cognizant of them, regulate them, leverage them for positive, uh, take accountability, admit to fault, take risks, things like that. The third one, social awareness, which is like systems thinking, like you know what the vision and purpose of the organization is, you know how you fit into it, but it's also about compassion and empathy for other people. So being socially aware, not only of the organization, but the people within it. And the last one is about relationship management, building relationships with other people that are built on a strong foundation of trust. It's also about wanting to develop in other people's growth. So self-awareness is about developing in your own growth. Relationship management is wanting to invest and develop other people, which is what a leader needs to do. And you don't need to have a formal title to do any of that. And, and I think right. as organizations, we miss the boat in saying, here's somebody who has a lot of growth potential. What are we doing to prepare them for that role? Yeah, some of it should be around the technical managerial competencies that I just listed. But what are we doing to ensure that they are they have strong 
emotional intelligence. And like you said, a manager, sometimes it's not making sure that all of the systems and the processes are in place and being utilized to their maximum capacity. It's dealing with the drama it's dealing That's with the, right. that is what you do as a manager. You deal with the drama, you deal with people's expectations, you deal with the fact that the, you know, the sky is blue, you know, like you deal with that, that you, people's emotions, expectations, feelings, that's what you deal with. And if you do not have those leadership competencies, if you yourself are not resilient, don't have a growth mindset, are not able to develop relationships with other people. You're screwed. Like we, we know managers like that, that, you know, that, they're we just, don't they're prepare not really, people enough. Yeah. You know, I see in my construction world that most of the time people are, are hired for reliability and knowing the work, right? They know the technical things you're talking about and they're the, the individual that shows up an hour early every day. So let's make them a manager, but we don't teach them the emotional skills that you're talking about, right? And and especially in construction, even the word emotion can be frowned upon. But at the same time, I think you're totally right that it's at any point you can choose to learn those things. And in fact, I had this, it was, this was a road construction crew. So it was, you know, not suit and tie, shiny shoes type of people, right? And they're a road construction group. And we, we were they were one of the guys was talking about the leader on on the crew and and I was like well who's the leader the foreman he's like no 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 the leader is the guy on the crew that you can go to for help whenever you need it mm. you know the title didn't matter right and I think that says a lot too that when people want to be a manager one of the best ways to be a manager one day is to prepare yourself by being a great leader now yeah right? I love that right well said right. I get to borrow that thought. <laughs> I'm oh, like, whatever. Okay. <laughs> can I borrow that? I'm going to straight steal from you. Okay. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to steal from you. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, like, I mean, my final thoughts are that is that, you know, anybody can be a leader. And I think leadership ultimately, like it's, it's rooted in, in rooted and grounded in others leading with the heart. That's right. Managerial, being a manager is leading with the head and the hands, but being a leader is leading with the heart. And I can't, I think that is the misconception about what good leaders or great leaders are. I think it's beginning to change. I think there's so much more out there. We got Brene Brown. You mentioned some great people that talk about, you know, that shift in what we think a good leader is. And it's, and we're embracing that a bit more. I'm still surprised that when I, you know, we podcasts, articles, great books that just focus on this. But then you go into a workplace, especially as a consultant, and you look around and you're working with these people to try and get them to lead with the heart. And like, nobody understands that concept. Nobody knows how to live it. And you're like, okay, I got my work cut out for me. And the majority of work, look at Gallup, like look at the engagement scores. Do they ever go up? They kind of hover at what, 60-ish, you know, they never go up. Why? So what can we do to penetrate these organizations so that they're, you know, I think strong leadership is linked to employee engagement. So what can we do to start shifting that as consultants, but as organizational leaders to say enough is enough. Let's start to shift and move, not forget about leading with the head and the hands. Let's that we're, we're okay there. We're doing well, but what can we do to start leading with the heart a bit more? And if you don't know what to do, you know, 
hire Philip, hire me, bring us on. Like we will help you. This is what we're passionate about. This is what we love to do. There are processes and systems that we can create to support you. that are grounded in your current organizational structure and strengths. It's not focus pocus. It's not magic. It takes hard work. But if you want to invest in that for your company and for your people, it's well worth it. And each, anytime an employee engagement score goes up by one point, done some research on it. Roughly, it can add about $4,000 to your bottom line. Imagine if each individual employee's engagement score went up by what point? How, what would that right. look like for profits for you? So if you think it's just all nice and lovey-dovey, no, it actually will impact your bottom line in, in, in outstanding exponential ways. So, I mean, if anything, if, if money's what makes you tick, you know, that's great, but do this. It'll, it'll actually get you beyond, it'll get you reaching a potential that you never even dreamed that you could reach. I'll end there. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, John, it was a pleasure talking to you and, and learned a lot from you. I'm, I will uh, put uh, Joanna's contact info in the show notes and uh, her website so you can go check her out. But again, Joanna Vagonis with Sun Gap Solutions. And uh, especially if you're in Canada, she's right next door to you. So she will uh, be able to help you. But a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, and hopefully we can do this again sometime in the future. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I would love to do it again in the future. If you learned something valuable today, please share it with others. For more information, head over to leaderthink.com.